Hello, and welcome to Hell No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. tired actually so I'm feeling a bit weird which is okay okay let's let me just uh, start talking this week is part two of the hate is toxic episode I will run through a little refresher of what I covered in part one last week's episode I covered the threatening letter the Carr family had received and Peggy Carr of can you guys hear my laptop it is oh the fuck it's doing it's like give it a second hold on last week's episode i covered the threatening letter the car family had received uh and peggy Carr falling very ill and her son and stops stepson stop son her son and stepson also getting really sick uh with the same symptoms Doctors eventually established they had consumed poison, but they had no idea uh, why them or how. They did find out the poison used was rare and incredibly toxic and was even banned in America since 1972. That poison is thallium. We talked about how Peggy's husband, Pie, was a suspect, and since he had been having an affair he uh he was looked at immediately but he also okay so because he also had the poison in his body he was ruled out as a suspect for more reasons than just that but he was not looked at as a suspect any longer pie's sister carolyn was a suspect but she was also cleared and um so was peggy's stepdaughter Tammy, Pi's daughter, Tammy. She was looked at because she was the only member of the family with no thallium in her body, but that was also explained and cleared. The whole family had been cleared. Detectives discovered the thallium was delivered into the Carr family home via tampered Coca-Cola bottles. Remember, they found the bottles. It was under the sink, actually. They find the empty bottles under the sink. The FBI lab tests them. Bingo, bango, definitely thallium in those motherfucking bottles. Whoever it was knew how to mix chemicals on an academic level. Since there was no chemical reaction that happened to the drink when the poison was slipped in. And the bottle caps, that was another thing that looked professionally done. They were replaced meticulously in a perfect way. Nobody could even tell except when put under like a times 100 microscope that those bottle caps had been popped open and then put back on. Another suspect that was looking really good was the neighbor Diana Carr. No relation to the Carr family who lived next door, by the way. But she didn't fit the profile. But she really, I mean, background in chemistry, doctor... Had a tiff with Peggy. 
recently, looking pretty good, but she was ruled out. So who were police looking at now? As far as I know, police never even looked into the woman who Pi was having an affair with. So I don't know what the fuck happened there, but they didn't even, I didn't even read about that in the book. I was thinking that that woman was a good suspect for the letter writer. Because remember, they got a letter, a threatening letter in the mail, but she never came up. So just stop thinking about that right now because that lead doesn't play out, sister. But the detectives, they have the FBI profile to go off of. And that gives them a lead. I highly recommend going back and listening to part one if you haven't, uh, as it holds way more details than what I just surmised. But now I'm going to start where I left off. And that's Detective Mincy is going back to the Carr family home to look around and see who may have been watching the family home and from where. So he's headed back to the Alturas home to look at the community and suss out the environment and and just kind of look and be like, who can see the home and from where? Because somebody was watching this family. Somebody knew this family. It must have been somebody close to them. Or it must have been somebody watching from somewhere. Is there evidence in a ditch, in an orange grove, in an orange grove? He didn't know, but he was, I'm going to go check it out. So December 22nd, they now had the FBI profile on who they were looking for. And this was December 22nd, 1988. This, so December 22nd, 1988, they now had the profile on who they were looking for. And Detective Mincy was now partnered up with an FBI agent named Brad Brecky. And the two took a ride out to the Carr family home where the poisoning had happened to take a look around the neighborhood. For the first time since they started on this case, they finally, finally laid eyes on the neighbor who was never around, Diana Carr's um, husband, George Treppel. This day, he was there. He was woodworking in his garage. So Detective Mincy and Brecky decided they might as well go ask him a few questions. He's there, and they could see him as soon as they pulled into into Pie's driveway. They were like, oh, there's a neighbor. He can see this house from his house. Um, we've heard a lot of stories. Maybe we should go talk to him. Diana had previously been questioned, but not George. George was a freelance writer for a computer magazine, uh, also a chemistry enthusiast. Yes, a male, a white male in his 30s, educated, lives close to the Carr family. You can see why on this day, with their FBI profile, you can see why they needed to talk to George. He was ticking some serious boxes here they approach george as he stands in his driveway and they ask him if he could answer if he if he could answer some questions regarding the poisoning at his neighbor's home at the car family home and george invited them into his house to have a chat he was like hell yeah come on in i'm an eccentric old man and i love talking to people so come on in at first, it didn't seem likely that this was their guy that they were looking for. In the home, they saw evidence that quite a few cats 
lived there. Um, didn't, yeah, okay. So quite a few cats lived there. And a note stuck on the wall. There was a note stuck on the wall reminding George to feed them. If George is this genius poisoner who can mix thallium with another chemical and stabilize Coca-Cola in this chemical process and meticulously pry off these caps and sneak this Coca-Cola into the neighbor's home and doing all of this without being seen or heard or even suspected, why couldn't he remember to feed his own damn cats without a reminder? Police were looking for an evil genius, not a man who forgets to feed his cats. As the questioning went on, they learned George, he didn't really like his neighbors. He seemed to have some uh, ill feelings towards them. He said they weren't his type of people and they all drove pickup trucks, which I found hilarious. So I guess if you drive a pickup truck, you aren't George Treppel's kind of people. Okay, then. I wonder what kind of people his kind I wonder what kind of vehicle his kind of people drive then what's what's so wrong with a pickup truck I wish I had a motherfucking pickup truck not a big one but a small one because I'm obsessed with curbside collection it's called curbside collection in this country I don't know what it's called elsewhere but it's awesome it's the one day of the year that you can literally put anything out on the side of the road and council has to collect it so people are putting out barbecues paintings desks mirrors couches chairs bed frames whatever if you go to a great neighborhood you get a ton of shit but I don't have a pickup truck I don't have I have a small car I do well I'll tell you right now I get creative and I do well but I don't have a pickup truck I want a pickup truck anyways Getting back on topic, if I had a pickup truck, I would not be George Trappel's kind of people. So whatever. So they're questioning George. Uh, they realize he didn't like his neighbors. He didn't like their pickup trucks. And George said he didn't associate with them. He said, I didn't really associate with them. Sometimes I'd give them a wave, whatever. But then he starts to tell Detective Mincy and Agent Brecky when they first moved in, Pi was always trying to sell them weird overpriced crafts that he had made, like a barbecue pit or whatever. And George, he was never interested. And then one day, Pi told George he would sell him his workshop. So this story kind of, this is how George says it. Pi tells it a bit differently. Anyways, I'll just keep going about how, how George told it. So George said that Pi told him that he would sell him his workshop for 10 grand or whatever, uh, and they agreed. Not because George wanted it, but because he didn't want it, and he didn't want to finalize the sale. He just wanted to jerk Pi around, maybe to kind of make doing business with him not so pleasurable so Pi would stop coming around trying to do business with him. I don't know, but this workshop thing got a bit messy, and it never happened. George was angry when he was talking about this story, though. I mean, the story doesn't have the context in it. Isn't that great? It's not a good story. But the reason why I'm telling you this right now is because when George told this story, it made him angry. And that raised a lot of flags to Mincy and Brecky. Uh, then something really stuck out. Mincy and Brecky asked George, why would anyone want to poison your neighbors to get them to move? like they did 
That's what he fucking responds to get them to move like they did. That is, um, that screams motive. (laughs) That, That fucking screams motive. Yeah. The Carr family, they had not been living in the home after the poisoning, uh, most likely because they had no idea what was the cause of the poisoning, so it was safer to stay away. But also, police never released the threatening letter the family had received months before Peggy and the boys were poisoned. So George, unless he wrote that letter... He should have no idea about it. And yet here he is telling police exactly what the motive was. Police knew. They saw that letter. It was something like, you have two weeks to move or you and all your family will die. This is no joke. And then all of a sudden, four months later, the family's poisoned. And obviously the motive was somebody hating the family so much they wanted him to move out. But if George didn't know about this... How did he know about this, I guess? Anyways, for a smart man, he didn't really think that comment through. It's safe to say George was now at the top of their suspect list. When Detective Mincy and Agent Brecky left George's home, they both were practically butt-slapping each other with, with excitement because they were convinced they had found their poisoner. The FBI then ran a check on old Georgie boy and discovered he had a criminal past. In the 70s, George Truppel was arrested for running a meth lab in North Carolina. Not, um, not just any meth lab, but apparently it was one of the largest meth labs ever to be busted in that part of America. I can't remember the exact region they said, but... It was like a lot. It covered more than a couple states in America, I believe. It was a large operation. Police estimated it was about a $7 million operation. And George was behind it all. He was the chemist to all of this. And he did go to jail for this. He was was charged with this and arrested and convicted. This meant they learned George was a fucking chemist. He was a chemist. George Treppel, the man who needs a written reminder to feed his cats, is a genius chemist who ran a meth lab and is married to an orthopedic surgeon who subsidized his life as a freelance tech writer. (sighs) Wow, okay. Honestly, if I made that up, I would be worried nobody would believe me because that is so far-fetched. And yet it's all true. Okay, so I say his wife subsidizes his life, uh, his freelance writing life, because George, he doesn't really make any money at all. And it is his wife, Diana, who brings in the money, while George is happy to sit back in his flip-flops, do whatever the fuck he wants, do whatever George does. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll elaborate later on what exactly it is George does to fill his days. Or who George is, really. But he's smart. He is a smart man. Yet he doesn't really work. He doesn't really buy into this idea of using his intelligence to make money, I guess. Whatever. He's he's got a wife who supports him. Okay. George Treppel, he seems to come off as a very eccentric man, I would say. Kind of strange. Like a lot of really smart eccentric people they kind of lack people skills 
He did not like children. He did not like noise. Loud noises were not his thing, which is probably why he didn't like children, because children make a lot of loud noises. He didn't care for people who drove pickup trucks, like I said earlier, which makes me laugh. I don't know what he's... I don't know what he has against pickup trucks. That's all I'm saying. Yet he has no qualms about running a meth lab. He seems kind of complex. He has these weird morals. He has these weird ethics. The FBI dug further into the background of the arrest of George and for the meth lab and discovered he was making his own chemicals essential for methamphetamines. And one of his ingredients was possibly thallium. Now, methamphetamines can be made without thallium. So why was he purposefully using this why was he purposely using thallium if he didn't need it i don't know anything about making methamphetamines it seems complicated as fuck but i'm sure you need to synthesize a lot of different chemicals so maybe that's what he was using this with this and it was some kind of byproduct obviously not going in to the methamphetamines that people were consuming because they would all be dead anyways there was a correlation with his old meth lab and thallium an agent, an agent who worked the case in the DEA, Richard Broughton, a man who had seen many criminal geniuses in his line of work, said that George Preppel said that George Treppel is probably the smartest chemist he has ever known. Uh, shit, I am getting some breaking bad vibes over here. I wonder if the creator of that show knew about this case. Was this somehow inspiration for Breaking Bad? I don't know. While in prison, uh, George was a model prisoner. He taught chemistry classes to other inmates, which I found funny because he's in there for running a meth lab as a chemist. They're like, you know what? This is your strong point. We're going to let you shine and Sean he did and eventually the prison even suggested early parole something else happened while George was in prison he had spats with other inmates guess what about Mm -hmm. about the volume of their radios George hated that inmates would play their radios louder than he thought was appropriate And the guards did nothing to enforce the volume rules. Probably the least of their fucking worries. People playing radios loud. And that really made George mad though. This is something police won't know until later. But George had a history of using chemicals to solve his problems. Uh, Such as when he lived in an apartment building in the 70s, he had neighbors. And guess what these neighbors did? These neighbors played their radio too loud and george's solution was to flood the neighbor's apartment with a chemical concoction similar to the effects of mace that he made himself so basically he made homemade mace which is like a pepper spray it burns it's gonna burn your skin it's gonna burn your eyes very unpleasant and he somehow uses tubes and fed the tubes into the pesky neighbor's apartment And apparently the neighbors moved out. So I'm not sure if he put it through the air ducts. I'm not sure if he put it under the door, through a window, or what. Um, Yeah, 
Another time in the 70s as well, I believe, George helped his friend get rid of roommates that weren't welcome. I don't know if they weren't paying rent or they were doing something like this, but his friend was complaining about these people who were living in his house and not paying rent and how his friend wanted to get rid of them and George was like let me have a crack at this and his friend was like okay what do you think George did well George he um he mixed a strong hallucinogen and dimethyl sulfoxide and coated high touch areas with that concoction around the house so dimethyl sulfoxide is something that makes the hallucinogen seep into a person's body through the pores on their skin meaning George was dosing whoever touched things like uh, the fridge door handle with psychedelics not fucking cool George not cool at all anyways those people moved out His friend no longer had that roommate problem. So what does this tell us? This tells us that George, uh, he likes administering drugs to people who don't know that they are getting these drugs put into their body. He seems to really like this. He has a track record of this. Upon the detectives interviewing the Carr family more, they discovered that George had been over to tell Pi to turn down his music a couple times something about loud music just really rubs george the wrong way and it seems it was happening again something else came to light during an interview with pi's former son-in-law who lived at the car home during pi's previous marriage before peggy the former son-in-law tells police that tammy used to get weird phone calls saying things like you look good in your swimsuit after she was just outside her home in her swimsuit so she knew she was being watched but the caller never identified himself tammy said it sounded like an older man and the caller would have been someone who was either driving by or hiding in the orange grove or maybe living next door when tammy was asked about this she remembered it well the caller would talk about uh this is not cool the caller would talk about masturbating and sexual fantasies he was having about her leaving tammy fucking traumatized and feeling sick yeah of course it would she said the caller knew when she was home alone which is weird that really scares me and he would call as soon as her family had left for work or to go out and run errands so it was clear whoever it was was watching her all the time she remembered it was a smart older man and she could tell that by the way that the caller spoke they asked her if it was george treppel's voice and she couldn't say yes or no because she had never heard george treppel speak before detective mincy wants to know more about these coca-cola bottles up until this point they have no idea how those coca-cola bottles made it into the car family home they just know that they appeared in the kitchen and nobody questioned it Dwayne tells Mincy that Travis and himself were painting outside the week Peggy got sick. The boys saw the eight bottles of Cokes under the sink on a Thursday. Travis and Dwayne 
were painting and took a break to drink Cokes. But when they went to get them from under the sink, they were gone. They looked everywhere, but they never found them until a few days later, the Coca-Colas reappeared as if somebody had taken them, perhaps tampered with them, and then snuck them back into the home. Mincy also discovers in this conversation that the boys had left the home for a few hours and possibly didn't lock the doors when they left, meaning no one was home, the home was unlocked, anybody could have came in there and did whatever they needed to do, took whatever they needed to take, did whatever they needed, and then brought it right back whenever apparently you know the doors they if they weren't locking the doors this time they probably don't lock the doors all the time pie also says before the poisonings he noticed one of the doors leading outside always seemed to be opened and the lock had stopped working mincy checked that door and found that he easily opened it with a credit card so this raises a question was george treppel coming and going from the Carr family home before he had poisoned them? Was George behind this all? Had he broke in, stole the family's Coca-Cola, brought it back to his house, tampered with it, poisoned it, put it all back together nice and neatly, wiped all of his fingerprints off of it, broke back into the home, put the Coca-Cola back under the sink, and then just sat back and waited for his plan to unravel? Is it George that had been been harassing the, the Carr family for years? Had he been making those phone calls to Tammy? Did he send that threatening letter? All of this was kind of starting to all point to George. By March 1989, roughly five months since the poisoning, things were still not good for Travis. He had lost all of his hair and was in hospital on a breathing machine for a while. But now he could walk uh, he could walk, but he did need some help walking. Dwayne had been out of the hospital for a while and was also now walking on his own, but sometimes, again, with, with help, like the help of a walker. The boys, they suffered terribly, but they managed to flush the thallium from their bodies naturally and stay alive, although muscle paralysis was still lingering. Peggy was still in a coma and she had no brainwaves for a very long time. It was, it was months, months they hadn't seen brainwaves. She went into a coma on October 31st and on March 3rd, the family signed the papers to have her life support shut off. It was a tough decision for the family. As you could imagine, that would be, nobody wants to be in that situation. That is just so sad. Um, but Peggy... She wasn't with them anymore. They decided she's not with us. We just have her body, which we're keeping alive. She's not, but her spirit, she's not there. She isn't with us. And they knew what they had to do. They knew they had to let her go. So March 3rd, 1989, Peggy Carr died after a long battle of trying to flush out the thallium from her body. This is now a full blown murder investigation okay somebody has now died from the results of these this poisoning this is now first degree fucking murder this is no longer attempted murder this is full-on homicide murder first degree okay you gotta ramp it up now someone's died from this 
Peggy's daughter, Sissy, did her mother's hair and makeup for her funeral, and Peggy was buried in her pale pink wedding gown. It was an incredibly sad day for the entire family, and so many people sent flowers. They all wouldn't fit in the chapel. There was, it was just overflowing with flowers. Peggy never wanted to be buried in the earth, so Pi made sure she was put to rest in a mausoleum. He chose the top part of the mausoleum so Peggy could hear the raindrops in her resting place, which is just very so sweet of him. She doesn't want to be buried in the ground, so he does the exact opposite and buries her at the top of a mausoleum. He's a good man, Pi. He respected his wife's wishes. At this time, Sissy still suspected Pi, though, because the people working the case, they wouldn't tell her anything that they were discovering. They didn't tell her anything about their suspicions because they feared that she would say something to the media and possibly spook George into uh, running or upping his walls, his, his guard. As of right now, George doesn't know that the police are looking at him. He has no idea. He thinks he's invisible. He thinks he's off the radar. So Sissy, she didn't know any of this and she highly suspected Pi still. The FBI had a plan to get closer to George and this plan involved special agent Susan Garak. Hello, Susan. Welcome, Susan. Susan had actually worked with Agent Brecky in the past shutting down a prostitution ring where these brothers convinced women that they would marry them, but only if they went where they were told um, to go, which was usually out of state, and they would force them to work in a sex trade. Then they would have these women bring all of the money that they made working in the sex industry back to them uh, expecting to get married and have the love of their life or whatever these brothers were promising them. But when the woman women would return, the brothers took the money and abandoned the women to find new women to exploit. So this was something that Susan Gorek had worked on with Agent uh, Brecky and they managed to shut that shit down. So, okay, they're good, okay, they're good. Special Agent Susan Gorek she was an undercover agent like I was saying she had the ability to swim through the underworld undetected. she was fucking good at her job she was very unassuming and most people underestimated Susan and that's why she was so good at her job she loved the hunt she loved gathering evidence doing all that paperwork putting it all together in a nice tidy stack for the judge and seeing that shit through she loved it she lived for this George Treppel and his wife, Diana, were both members of Mensa. So Mensa, if you don't know, is a group of the most intelligent individuals in the world. And to qualify to be in this group, uh, you must be in the top two percentile of highest IQ scores globally. According to Mensa.org, today there are 145,000 Mensa members from 90 countries of all ages. They have social gatherings, meetings, and events. It's a club for the really, really smart. You can actually take the Mensa IQ test on their website, but it's only to like for you to get a feel of how the test works, and it isn't to qualify you. It takes 25 minutes, and it's a lot of shapes and patterns. I got through four minutes of it, and I got bored, and I quit. I quit. It, it was boring and I quit. Take the test. Let me know how you go. 
In a crazy twist, the FBI discovered that George Treppel was hosting a Mensa gathering. He loved doing this, okay? So he was hosting a Mensa gathering at a local hotel. And not just any gathering, though. He would be hosting a Mensa murder mystery and dinner night. And how did the FBI know this? Well, George posted an ad in the newspaper about it, hoping to attract more Mensa members, which I found really brazen because this was not long after Peggy had died from being poisoned. And now her neighbor, George Treppel, is throwing this murder mystery dinner. And it gets even more brazen as I go on. But with this Mensa murder mystery dinner, special agent Susan Gurek had her in and she wanted to be sure to nail this assignment and met with a behavioral science team to tell her, she wanted this behavioral science team to tell her what type of personality George would respond well to so she could ensure a friendship would be made between her and George the FBI was in it for the long haul they knew George wasn't going to tell just anyone his secrets or let just a random pickup truck driving person close to him so they were prepared to take this as far as they needed which meant an undercover sting operation The FBI chose Susan Gurek because she is smart and uh, could easily pose as a Mensa member, but also because she was a woman, they thought that George would find her non-threatening. Susan went under the alias of Sharon Gwynn, Sherry for short, when infiltrating the Mensa group. This is how George would know Susan. He would know her as Sherry full name Sharon Gwynn it's it's an alias though okay special agent Susan wrote George a letter that saying that she had saw his Mensa murder mystery dinner ad in the paper you know she had seen this she had recently separated from her husband and is thinking about moving to the area and she's been in Mensa for a while but never partook in any events And this could be just what she needs in her life right now. Basically asking George to invite her to his Mensa murder mystery dinner, whatever. And it worked. George wrote back to her and he invited her along with an application. In her application for the event, she had to fill out a category. So this was like a registration application dealio. Anyways, there was categories she had to pick what she preferred her character to be. After all, it's a murder mystery and dinner where the members are the players. But here are the categories. Susan, or rather I should say Sherry, wink wink, could be either an innocent bystander, a victim, or a murderer. Then in a twist straight out of a movie, the on the bottom of the registration form, it said, but everybody will be a detective. The irony was lost on George. April 14th, 1989 was the first time special agent Susan met George Treppel under her alias of Sherry at the Mensa event he was hosting. This was going to lay the foundation of a budding friendship that would get her close to her suspected poisoner to unveil his crime. But no pressure or anything. Special Agent uh, Susan felt obligated to do a good job, a perfect job for Peggy and her family. She felt she owed it to this woman 
who lost her life and she just wanted justice for the Carr family. So Susan, she really put a lot of effort into this job. The first point of contact for Susan with George was at registration. Susan had to check in and receive her name tag, her t-shirt, and envelope, which contained the details of her character. Um, and none other than George himself was handling that task. So this Mensa murder mystery dinner, this was held at a hotel and it was a pretty big event and George, he was the organizer, so he was the one handing out these packs and just making sure everything was organized. The first impression was that George was not her typical suspect to Susan. He was very non-threatening, very meek. Uh, his eyes, they didn't come off as evil. And he seemed to be a very lovely man. She was like, okay, is this wrong? Is this the wrong man we're chasing here? Susan's character for the weekend was not only Sherry, because remember she was undercover as Sherry, but she had been giving, given another character named by George for the murder mystery weekend and was named Roberta. And her character was a, a rich woman bored with life whose hobby is practicing voodoo. She uh, she better not get drunk because she's got a lot to remember at all times. First her FBI undercover alias and now her character alias, Roberta. And the whole time she is never allowed to reveal who she really is. So she's she's three aliases deep, two aliases deep. She's three names deep. <laughs> Being an undercover agent must be so wild. Her job is to be someone she's not and befriend someone for information pertaining to a horrendous poisoning all the while pretending to be this Mensa member but also she's going to her real home at the end of the day with her real children and her real husband like my anxiety would be through the fucking roof that someone's following me and is gonna know my family and know where I live and even like going it's just crazy like imagine if you were working a case in the same area you lived in you'd be scared to go to the movies with your family you'd be scared to do anything because you never know if the person who thinks you're somebody else will be there anyways just scary uh she was nervous but this wasn't her first time undercover and this was probably the the safest undercover job that she had ever done except uh, when she learned George's wife was cooking all the food for the weekend event that made her feel uneasy and she already started thinking about ways like excuses of getting out of having to eat the food she didn't know they just told her you know this guy possibly his wife we don't know uh poison food drink blah 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 she would have been scared I think they really warned her don't take any food from him or just be careful what you leave around him but it must have been one hell of a spread on that buffet because Susan did end up eating and drinking the food and beverages reasoning with herself that the probability of George and Diana or just George whoever poisoning his Mensa member group was unlikely and it didn't really fit his profile but damn how can you ever be so certain I don't know Susan was right though. The food was not poisoned, although she did leave her iced tea. She didn't drink that. She did manage to befriend George after uh, overhearing him talking about wanting to sell his home. She swooped in and said, oh, I might be interested in buying it. 
And Susan had also learned through George's jokes. So apparently George did like a stand-up comedy routine the opening night of the murder mystery weekend. And all of his jokes were about hating lawyers. They were all lawyer jokes. So anyways, Susan got the idea to tell George that her ex-husband, who she's divorcing, is a lawyer because he really hates lawyers. She also told him how things were getting very messy in this divorce because he was a lawyer. And I don't know, she made a whole bunch of stuff. Anyways, this worked and, and George was really interested in her. He offered her to come by anytime to have a look inside his home. That is exactly what Susan was after. She got it. She good. Now remember, this is a murder mystery dinner weekend, which means... George has concocted all these characters and murderers and how they were dying, right? Well, 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 it was really creepy because the plot written was that people were being poisoned and that's how they were dying. But thallium wasn't the cause. I believe it was the South American flower Datura, which can also be a hallucinogen. But it's also quite poisonous. So 10 out of 10, don't recommend. Do not recommend. It is natural. I have seen this actually in the wild, in real life. Uh, when I was backpacking through Central America, I saw a deterra tree. Very beautiful. I did not touch it. I know better. The plot, anyway, so this was used, which is crazy because it's a hallucinogen but it can also be a poison. And this is what was chosen for the plot of this mystery murder weekend. The plot of George's murder mystery was people were being poisoned and dying. Little too close to what's happening in real life near him, don't you think? Well, he didn't think so. One of the murders was a woman character playing a spy who was going to turn in a man who was up to no good. And the woman, she was then poisoned by the man who was up to no good. If that's not going to put Susan on edge, I don't know what will. It's basically her situation taking the worst turn it possibly could. It is her undercover cop nightmare of what could happen and it is being played out right in front of her and she has to be like well this is such a good plot this is such a fun mystery murder weekend that was me clapping by the way that's her good plot really love that doesn't terrify me at all anyways the weekend ended and susan had managed to complete her task befriend george and find a way to get close to him and into his home she did it. She did it. What I learned next was almost so crazy. I thought it can't be real, but it is. I'm not sure if George was enjoying flaunting about Peggy and the boys poisoning in a way that was very specific, but also could be argued. It was totally unrelated. But listen to this. So Susan was reviewing her envelope. She was given the past weekend by George. And in the booklet, George had written about the Mensa murder mystery weekend. And in the booklet, George had written, um, so the booklet was for the Mensa murder mystery. It was like in their, their packet thing, whatever. And this is what it read, like kind of telling you what's in store for the weekend plot, or maybe it's like a clue. It read, quote, 
when a death threat appears on the doorstep, prudent people throw out all their food and watch what they eat. Hardly anyone dies from magic. Most items on the doorstep are just a neighbor's way of saying, I don't like you, move or else. Unquote. What the fuck? That, ugh, it is, it's crazy how telling that is. It is crazy. Like, that's, okay, anyways. Why the fuck is this murder weekend plot for his Mensa gathering so telling? Like, it just, it screams that he wanted to tell people that he did this. I mean, we haven't got any concrete evidence yet, but if it is him who did it, that is very telling and scary and, like, he's openly bragging and kind of flaunting it in front of people. Like, haha, you'll never catch me. Well, the FBI profiler said that the poisoner would not only take pride in getting away with the murder but also most likely want to brag about it so was this his veiled way of bragging openly to the smartest people he knew Susan decided she was going to move fast on George's offer to come by and view his home he is potentially selling um he only asked that she call first to say when she would drop by and she did. She brought along another special agent, uh, an undercover agent, Nona, Nona Dyes, who would be playing the role of her cousin, Mona. And I wonder if everyone who goes undercover uses an alias that is kind of similar to their real name for like reaction purposes. Because if I went under the alias, I don't know, like say Kevin or something really far away from sounding like my real name, I would be less likely to react quickly when someone said it. And that would be a tell, tell sign I'm, I'm using a fake name or I'm lying. So if they were like, hey, Kevin, and I didn't look, and then they're like, Kevin, and I didn't look, and then they're like, Kevin, and I was like, oh, you're talking to me? Like they'd be like, how come you didn't respond to your name, Kevin? But then check this out. Say I went under Laurel instead of Laura and they hey Laurel yeah boom see how quick that response is just saying I don't know maybe <laughs> you can it is very clear I have never done any undercover work I could never oh my god anyways Mona and Sherry aka special agents Nona and Susan were on their way to George's home in El Turris. right beside the home Peggy and her boys were poisoned in George greets them kindly and shows them around by the way, the, the FBI has agents hiding in the orange grove surrounding George's home. Totally unbeknownst to old Georgie. But that just gives you a visual of how serious uh, this investigation is being taken. While George is showing them around, he opens a closet and inside is some SNM attire. And also a bunch of full unopened soft drink cans, including Coca-Cola. And he points at them and says left over from our murder now he means from the mensa murder weekend as he supplied all the beverages and food but still to me i'm thinking is this another way for him to openly confess or talk about the poisoning without actually confessing because that's kind of strange oh yeah those coca-colas yeah left over from the murder oh okay that's um that's kind of fucked up George's home was typical of an eccentric genius who loved LSG because LSG 
who loved LSD because, oh yeah, I haven't mentioned that part, but George loved tripping on acid. He found it therapeutic. He also really enjoyed amphetamines. Um, but he found LSD, he found psychedelics a way to release the junk in his mind and open doors that were other, otherwise locked without the aid of LSD. Uh, George loved wearing tie-dyed shirts, shorts, and flip-flops, and his house really reflected his personality. It was very colorful, he had all these cats running around, he had botany and chemistry books on display, he loved dinosaurs, he had tons of crystals and gems, rocks and quartz, all that kind of stuff. His wife loved crime novels and had a huge library of murder mysteries, uh, Susan saw this and, and asked him if it was his wife who wrote the plot for the Mensa gathering. And he said yes, but I I don't think it was her. Susan wasn't convinced of anything yet. She wasn't convinced George did it. She wasn't convinced Diana did it. She wasn't convinced yet. She wanted to put in the hard work and get some concrete evidence. During the tour, George gave the woman of his home they did look out the window and see the neighbor's home, Pie and Peggy's. Home was empty. It was an empty home, and Susan asked about it. But George said that the house is for sale now, and he hears they are asking for way too much. And he also told them a few stories about how he didn't like the neighbors who had previously lived there. He said nothing about Peggy being poisoned to death and the family fleeing in fear that they would die he said nothing about it at all a man obsessed with chemicals and he doesn't talk about a rare deadly poisoning case happening right next door to him also a man who had just thrown a murder mystery dinner he's not saying anything about this crazy real life murder mystery that's happening next door to him Special Agent Nona saw a scale in a spare bedroom of George's home, and that led her to believe that he could potentially be distributing drugs from the home, but there was no other signs that he had another meth lab on the go, which that's what they really wanted to find, that or a bottle labeled thallium, which they never found either. If they found evidence there was an active meth lab, they could get a warrant easy peasy, but uh, it, it was going to be harder than that for them. The two undercover agents left the home without anything, no concrete evidence, no reason to issue a search warrant. And when they were leaving, Susan told him she was looking for a smaller home to buy, and he even suggested considering his neighbor's home that is for sale. Knowing what Susan knows, I'm sure she got goosebumps after hearing that. He is recommending that she buy a home somebody was poisoned to death in. Yikes. Susan went back to look at the house again under the ruse that her ex-husband would need to sign off on it in the event she wanted to buy it. And her miserable lawyer ex-husband Richard had to inspect it. This was her plan. The plan was to get George to empathize with Susan over her abusive ex-husband, to see it all happening right in front of him, and also to see how George would handle the conflict between the arguing couple. Would George defend his new friend Susan and possibly try to kill Richard, or maybe at least offer Susan some advice on how to poison her problem away? Or would he do exactly what the profile stated he would do and avoid the conflict? May 23rd, 1989, Susan and her fake husband, played by Lieutenant Mike Lawton, arrived to inspect George's home. 
Or should I say Sherry and Richard? Richard's character was rude, masculine, abusive, abrasive, and just an unkind bully type, the type that George would not react well to. Lieutenant Lawton, he played the role really well. He thoroughly inspected the property and also created tension so thick that it made George so uncomfortable. He retreated into the safety of his own bedroom away from uh, Lieutenant Lawton and Special Agent Susan as they toured the home. They did get to see how George would react to conflict and it was exactly what they thought and then they left, leaving George meditating on his bed, searching for peace. That's how much conflict affects George's mental state. It basically tortures him. He had to retreat into his bedroom and go into a state of meditation because of the constant bickering that Susan and her fake ex-husband lawyer Richard were doing in front of George. He really hated it. At one point, though, uh, Richard, a.k.a. Lieutenant Lawton, went to look around the basement and George pretended to kick him down the stairs and told Sherry, a.k.a. Susan, that they should lock him down there. And they both shared a laugh and had a moment kind of tightening their friendship bond. But as soon as Lieutenant Lawton came back upstairs, George avoided all conflict with him. Later, Susan called George to apologize for her ex-husband's personality but George said it's fine he's probably meeting the guy at his worst and he actually was making excuses not to hate him which was very odd to the FBI George appeared to be more complex than they originally thought because he would talk shit about Pie Car and their family even though the worst thing the Carr family ever did was play loud music and rip around on their three-wheelers messing up George's yard, which yes, sucks, but why isn't George mad about his friend Sherry, aka Susan, being under the thumb of this abusive ex-husband? After all, Susan seems to be somebody George likes, maybe even cares for, so why is he not mad at this man who seems to be putting her through a bit of hell? Well, my guess is George only values people he deems intelligent. And in his eyes, everyone else is just people who drive pickup trucks. <laughs> to a normal person, there is no correlation. But to George, those things are very much related. There was also another incident which was never proven to have any relation to George, but he was suspected of it. The Carr family had a dog that would escape all the time and run around and chase George's beloved cats, which, of course, George hated. And despite voicing his concerns with their loose dog wreaking havoc, uh, the dog continued to torment his cats and get loose. They just couldn't keep this dog in the gate. This dog was smart. It learned how to unlatch the gate. It kept getting out. One day, the dog came home and the Carr family noticed it was very sick, very unwell, it was getting very thin, like emaciated, and eventually it died after losing most of its fur, almost like it had been poisoned, possibly with thallium. The police tried to retrieve the corpse of that dog to do tests on it, but they could never locate where Pi had buried it, and Pi, he didn't remember. This was years ago. Pi was like, I don't remember where I buried that dog. One day when George, Susan, and Nona were driving back from lunch, George told them to stop the car because he spotted some poison berries and he picked them and he showed Susan and even made a joke that her ex-husband Richard should eat them. 
A few things were becoming clear to Susan about George, like he seemed to really like the idea of poisoning his problems. Susan decided they needed to up the controversy between her and Richard, aka Lieutenant Lawton, her fictional ex-husband, who she was in the process of divorcing, but you know, the whole setup was it was really hard because he was a controlling lawyer. So Susan sets up a situation she wants George to witness to try and push him to the point of something sinister. Even though they know George hates face-to-face confrontation, they keep trying it, and George keeps running away at the first sign of an uncomfortable encounter, which they knew would happen, so I don't know why they keep trying this technique. I guess they really wanted George to see this and empathize with Susan and maybe offer her some murder advice or, I don't know, open up about murdering him and possibly going into like a a poison plan or something I'm not sure but after multiple tries they realized George wasn't going to offer Susan any advice on how to poison Richard because he wasn't going to hang around long enough to witness Richard and Sherry argue George seemed to be steering clear of that problem he didn't want anything to do with it he didn't want to witness it They thought they were getting nowhere. Susan was getting worried she would get uh, pulled from the case, but then she found out that George and Diana had moved. They moved out of that house. They moved about an hour away. So she called George and was like, hey, George, can I rent your house? If he said yes, then that meant legally she could have it scrubbed for evidence like Thallium because it's technically her house. And so they could look in the drain pipes, the air conditioning filter, the vacuum bags, wherever. They could look for trace amounts of thallium, thallium bottles. They could do whatever they wanted if the house was legally rented by Susan, a.k.a. Sherry. So I don't know how they got around the lease paperwork because obviously her real name is Susan and she can't put that on a agreement. But I don't know. Whatever, they did it. George agreed and Susan moved in. Turns out that Pie Car's home was now under new ownership as well. A deputy had bought it. That's right, a police officer had bought it. But this officer had no idea that Sherry was undercover or Susan. He, oh gosh, I'm getting them confused. He had no idea that Susan was un- undercover. Uh, they didn't tell him anything about this. They kept this undercover operation very secret. So a deputy was renting. Um, the Picard family home when Susan was renting George's home. And it makes me wonder if maybe that's why George and Diana moved at that exact moment. Maybe they found out that they were neighbors with a deputy and they were like, let's, let's move right now. Anyways, if George was guilty of poisoning his neighbors in the first place, so they would move out and he could live peace, a peaceful life. Why did he decide to move not even a year later maybe he just really hated the Carr family and wanted to hurt them I don't know um and them moving out was just a bonus or maybe he didn't think his plan through all the way and now realized he should distance himself or maybe Diana maybe she actually did want to move her medical practice maybe this was a long time coming and and the whole thing was legit I'm I'm not sure It just, I don't know. Susan moved into George's home December 12th, 1989. George still had a lot of stuff in the home, which was a bonus for the case um, investigation, obviously. But he only moved about an hour away and Susan feared he would pop up unannounced to collect his things and find forensics 
forensic examiners scouring for trace amounts of thallium. That really, that was a concern of Susan's. So the police, they got to work quickly and they collected as much evidence as they could find. Like unlabeled weird bottles from George's workshop, which there were multiple. There was a lot of these. They sent those off to the FBI labs for testing, but for some reason the results took a while to get back. This case seemed to be moving very slow and Susan and others were giving up hope they would find anything concrete on George. Did he even do this? If not him, then who? He fits the FBI profile perfectly after all. But Susan really thinks he did. Uh, and a, a lot of other detectors, a lot of other detectives, they also think that George did this as well, but it was just being very hard to, to prove. And it, it was, uh, yeah, Susan, Susan was just wondering if it, this was all for nothing. So she's at the end of her tether and this undercover job has exhausted her and made her family life very hard as well. She was raising children and trying to be there for them and her husband Gary who was also a cop so he was under more understanding than probably most spouses would be because he's a cop he knows how it works but it was also taking a toll on Susan because she had to go in and out of this Sherry character uh, and one day she decides she's going to stop the undercover job on George. And this is crazy. This is like out of a movie. She calls, but it's not, this is true. She calls her supervisor to inf to inform him she's dropping the job. And as she is on the phone with him, he gets a call from the FBI lab. The call is to report the lab's finding from the bottles taken from George Treppel's home, the Alturas home, that she's renting the bottles that they took from there months earlier and yes you probably guessed it one of the small brown bottles taken from the workshop in george's home tested positive for thallium nitrate susan was hysterically happy to hear this her year-long surveillance and undercover work was finally coming together and she could stop being Sherry, the Mensa member and friend to George, and start being special agent Susan Gorek full-time again. So she completed her job, they got what they needed, and now she could start doing what she loves best and that's putting everything together, tidying it up in a neat stack, making the arrest, and going for the conviction and sentencing. It took a month to get all the paperwork and warrants in place to arrest George Treppel and charge him with the murder of Peggy Carr. And on April 7th, 1990, they did exactly that at 8 a.m. George went easy, but he said nothing to incriminate himself. And he asked for an attorney almost straight away, meaning they couldn't question him at all. Word got out pretty fast that the poisoner had been arrested as the police held a press conference after George was brought into the police station. It was all over the news that Peggy Carr's neighbor was arrested for her death. So her children were seeing this on the news and they were thinking, no fucking way. The neighbor, the neighbor did this. Meanwhile, the home George was arrested in was searched thoroughly and there was a lot of stuff found that led police to believe that George Treppel may have been planning or doing things that involved sinister and illegal stuff. They found a lot of dangerous chemicals when they searched both his homes, the one he was arrested in and the one Susan was renting in Alturas. They found stuff like sodium cyanide, lead chloride, and cobalt nitrate. 
I'm no scientist, I'm no chemist, but those sound fucking dangerous. When I hear those chemical concoctions, I think of poisons and explosives. A book was found with the words General Poisoning Guide handwritten on the front of it. And inside that book was a collection of articles written by various professionals, mostly law enforcement probably from textbooks, detailing how poisoning was hard to prove in the way of if someone died of natural causes or from the poison. Proving that in a court of law can sometimes be tricky. It was pretty detailed, and guess what page stuck out the most? That's right, a page on thallium poisoning. It included things like a lethal dose, symptoms, and how long it takes to see those symptoms. It was very detailed. The bathroom looked as though someone had been trying to escape who was trapped inside and written inside the bathroom were the words, help, we are being killed. Okay, so I'm not sure what that's about. Later, police say that they believe that was written by former tenants. So I don't know what the fuck, I don't don't know what the fuck happened before George and Diana moved into that home. But it sounds like it could also be another episode for a true crime podcast. They said it looked like uh, someone had been trying to like kick the door open from the inside. So there had been some type of struggle in that bathroom even before George and Diana moved into it. So that doesn't have any real relevance with with this case as they couldn't really connect that to George and Diana because, you know, they believe it happened before it wasn't their doing. But it is uh, quite weird. Police pounded walls to see if they could find a secret room filled with chemistry stuff. And they did indeed find a secret room built into the walls. But what they found wasn't what they expected. It was a sex torture dungeon, which had been soundproofed. Susan and other officers think George may have been planning to abduct her and put her in that room. In the home, George also had a collection of magazines with titles like Whipped Women and Advanced Bondage. They also found handcuffs and whips and a lot of other leathery items for wearing and hitting. It's fine if that's what George is into, uh, but only with consenting partners. And if he had consenting partners, why was he building a soundproof hidden secret room? Looks suspicious and police thought so as well. Also found was a massive catalog of books. I'm talking over 60 novels, all on bondage. Alongside those books was found a tidy set of pliers and screwdrivers. I hope those were just for hanging shelves, but something tells me they weren't. Susan knew George was into some S&M because she had seen some of the leather suits and, and whatnot when her and Nona had the first tour of George's home in Alturas. But this was different. This showed them he was obsessed, like very obsessed with this. They found torture porn in the VCR. um, And this was most likely the last video George had been watching because it was in the VCR. And the torture included gruesome murder. This was like murder porn along with rape. uh, Just really gruesome torture. And the police said it looked really real. Uh, And it was very hard to watch. I won't go into detail about what was on the tape. It is detailed in the book Poison Mind by Jeffrey Good and Susan Garak. So if you want to hear those details, um, 
yeah, it's in that book. They also found George's diary, which contained some very telling entries that gave them a look into who George really was. And I'm not going to re- read that particularly horrible entry now. I am going to read that later, actually. And I will put a warning on that because it is very offensive. I won't read it word for word. I might just pull out some paragraphs. Um, so George was being held in prison while waiting for the court case to start. And guess who was in the same prison? Alan, Peggy's oldest son, who was in the Navy when Peggy was poisoned. Alan, he had attempted suicide once Peggy died, and he was mentally, he wasn't doing well at all, and the Navy ended up releasing him from his service. After his failed suicide attempt, he seemed to have little to no regard for his well-being and was pulled over by police many, many times for speeding around on his motorcycle until they eventually took away his license because all these speeding fines were adding up and adding up he wasn't paying of them paying any of them he lost his license and then he was arrested for driving his motorcycle without a license and that's how he ended up in the same prison as his mother's murderer alan he wanted to get george he had been having fantasies about killing him but the guards didn't allow them in the same area together so one day alan filled a cup with his own urine and when george walked past his cell He called out his name and then he threw the cup of urine in George's face and it hit him right in the face. It was like dripping out of his beard and dripping down his face. And George, he had no reaction to this at all. He just looked at Alan and then turned and started walking away. But he knew, Alan made it clear that who he was. He made it clear he was uh, Peggy's son. George Treppel's wife, Diana, would visit George in prison, and one day she got angry and assaulted a prison officer. Diana accused the officer of enjoying patting her down too much during like a routine search when you enter the prison, and she also accused the prison guard of grabbing her breasts. The officer she assaulted was a female worker, and Diana pushed the officer and grabbed the officer's breast, so basically doing what she said was what she did to her doing it back to her whatever anyways this led to an assault charge on diana it was when george was in prison he learned that his friend sherry was actually special agent susan garak when george saw her as susan for the first time he had no anger he actually seemed happy to see her uh which she found very odd Diana, on the other hand, has a burning hatred towards Susan. And every time Diana saw Susan, she can't help but call her a bitch in many different ways. George's trial consisted of a jury. And as far as I know, George Treppel, he didn't take the stand. And if he did, that information, it wasn't in the book I read on this case. In court, George's defense painted him as an eccentric, calm man who felt pushed out of society and felt like he never really fit in and it was very easy to feel sorry for George as all those things they may be true but he also has a dark side I am now going to read bits of the letter that George Treppel wrote to his I I believe it was presumed it was for his wife Diana um, that was found in his journal which was found in his house when his house was searched and If for any reason you are feeling sorry for George, you won't be after I read you some of this letter. Just a warning, this letter is highly offensive. 
my uh, source information for this letter did come from the book Poison Mind. Uh, the letter is dated November 9th, 1980, and it starts off, Hello, love. I'm writing this in as specific manner as possible to try to give you some concrete examples. Please discuss this with me if you need to, if you need to in case I don't make something clear. Save this letter since it will be valuable in understanding me. I'll run a few photocopies and send them along so you can put them in different places, which will cut down on the chances of losing this letter, as the last one was lost. I've told you I don't like the little girl talk you do. Specific things I object to are leaving out consonants, as in pretty George or I got you captured. Also, you use first person when second person form is what is required. For example, I captured the George or where's the George? You ask utterly stupid questions or make statements that end in, do you know that? Examples of stupid questions are, when you get me worked up and real horny, you ask, why should I play with you? After we decided we'll make love, you ask, does anybody in here want to play? Or you'll lie on me and ask, I got you captured, you know that? All of this is done in a high squeaky voice. I do not like children and I keep feeling like I'm raping a child. When six-year-old kids came into mom's first grade class, if they confused first and second person grammar, they were earned a special label, retarded. I have no wish to fuck a retarded child. However, I do want to make love with an adult. Also, get yourself a new writer. I am overly tired of the lines, Pretty George, are you stealing my underwear? Does anybody in here want to play? Are you my pretty George? I found your handle. Then in this letter, he goes into describing things that she can do with her mouth if it's not talking. So he doesn't like what she's saying. And this is what he, he says that she can do with her mouth. If in doubt, use your mouth to kiss, bite, suck, lick, drool, or anything but talk. Next subject, sure ways to get me pissed off. You say that you need hugs to grow on. That's true. We both need attention. Giving me attention is sort of like filling a cup. When it's full, I'm happy. And until it's filled, I'll go any lengths to get it filled. You say you don't currently feel good about yourself. How do you think I feel about my self-worth when you come in and have to read and process the mail before you pay attention to me? Or how about when we get ready to make love and you say you have to use the bathroom and you go and sit and read comics? I get a deep down feeling that I really am not worth shit when finishing a comic book is a more desirable prospect than making love to me. So this letter is kind of showing us that um, George is really demanding a lot from Diana, like a lot. He wants all of her attention. And in this next part, he talks about how she pays way too much attention to the cats. He says, when the cats want attention, you rub them until they have enough to go to sleep. Um, and then he says, quote, when I want more attention, you bitch that I grab you and don't like being grabbed. Why do the cats get better treatment than I do, unquote. So this is showing us how much entitlement he has. Then in the letter, he starts talking about how when the phone rings, uh, when they're having sex, he hates it, that she gets up to answer it. Um, and he says that 
he wants to get the feeling that his like he being loved is more important than uh, a phone call and he even put in big capital letters no matter who it is um yeah he wants to be the most important thing actually it says uh let me oh i'll read it to you actually quote i want to get the feeling that i'm loved and important at least some of the time and answering the phone means that whoever is at the other end no matter who it is is more important than i am unquote then he goes into getting pissed off about when they go out to dinner and they're in a restaurant and she sees friends that um she introduces her friends to him he really hates that um (laughs) so this is just screaming control he is just trying to control her he doesn't want to meet her friends he doesn't even want to take two minutes to say hello to them or nothing he yeah and then a lot of it is just about him getting pissed off that she's not fulfilling him sexually and in this next part he says quote Now to sex. I keep saying I want you to be more spontaneous. Maybe I should restate that and ask you to surprise me. If you can't think up your own surprises, I I imagine your books must have some clever seduction scenes and TV is full of such stuff. Here is a list of possible surprises. It's not a complete list, just things that come to mind as I write. Dress in something very sexy and meet me at the door when I come in. Ask, would you want me to wear leather for you tonight? Wear something very sexy under your street clothes. Take me out shopping and then tell me what you've done and what will happen when we get home. Get some very exotic makeup such as red or even black lipstick and see how outrageously you can make yourself up. For example, how about long swept black eyebrows? such as Mr. Spock would be proud of, lots of blue eyeshadow underneath, and black or ruby red lips. Points are awarded for effort, so the makeup job doesn't have to be all that neat or professional looking. Wear your high-heeled boots around the house just to get me very turned on. Very is underlined. Bring a small can of chocolate syrup or whipped cream to bed with you. Tell me I have to lick it off wherever you put it on yourself. Alternatively, let me put it wherever I want to lick it off. Make love to me in the running water of the shower. Read the sections on bondage and slow masturbation in the joy of sex and follow the instructions given. Ask me to give you a full massage. This is a massage on the floor. I prefer a table, but the floor can be used. Then love making. Then a whirlpool bath to get the massage oil off. Wine is optional. Unquote. So this is a letter he is writing um, Diana at the time it was written, which was in 1980. So in 1980, he wrote this letter to Diana. And it goes on and on and on. Um, Yeah, I think it was a very long letter. That's um, That's just some of it. And you can see why I said it's very offensive, particularly... Yeah, actually all of it. All of it is offensive. There is not one thing in that letter that is is not offensive. Um, And it really tells us a lot about George, about how he views women, about how he wants to be in control. He wants all the attention. uh, And it really makes me hate him a lot. That letter alone just makes me hate him. 
In that note, he refers to his mother's first grade students because his mother was a teacher and apparently she was a very domineering mother who never let George do anything on his own or let anyone else care for him. This could explain why George is attracted to domineering women, which is how some people describe his wife, Diana, but also why he hates women or at least has no respect for them. That's, that's clear. It is, yeah, it is inherently clear he has no respect for women. When police interview George's wife's friends and co-workers, they discover that George was terrible to Diana and even poisoned her dog once because Diana went to her friend's house for dinner and George was mad that he wasn't getting all of Diana's attention and poisoned her fucking dog. Also, Diana's friend said she went over there um, to Diana and George's home once and it was right after George had gotten really angry and smashed the Christmas tree and it turned out George was so angry because Diana wouldn't have sex with him uh, and that's why he flew into a rage he, he smashed this Christmas tree and then her friend shows up there and George was walking around the house referring to himself in third person saying how horny he was he's like George is horny George is horny oh this fucking guy I Oh, he's just controlling and sex obsessed and just feels like he should get whatever he wants, wherever he wants, whenever he wants. And I just, just fucking pisses me off. During the court case, a lot of the above information wasn't allowed to be spoken about as it had nothing to do with the thallium poisoning. And it was just basically character destroying because there was a lot of evidence to destroy his character. He was not a good person. He is not a good person. The prosecuting team, they had no fingerprints to show or even really evidence George Treppel had been in the Carr family home, but they did have the evidence of the thallium found in, in George's Alturas home in his workshop. They had that thallium nitrate and that made a pretty solid case. February 5th, 1991, George Treppel was found guilty of first degree murder. Not only was he found guilty of first degree murder, but he was also found guilty on six counts of attempted first degree murder because he tried to poison the whole family. Uh, seven counts of poisoning with intent to kill or injure because there was seven people that he, he, uh, tried to kill with that poison coca-cola was the whole family and one count of tampering with consumer product that being the coca-cola in the state of florida george treppel was sentenced to death to this day he remains on death row and i didn't find any execution date set for him um and the death sentence it doesn't mean necessarily he will be executed, but it does mean he will die in prison um, and he will never be released. So whether he dies of natural causes, whether he dies from a, another prisoner killing him, whether he is executed by the state, it, it, he just, he won't get parole. There's no way he can ever leave prison. So that's the case of the man who poisoned an entire family. If you want more details of any part of this case, particularly the court case, I kind of skimmed over because there was just so much. I think it's like the last five chapters of the book are just of the court case. So yeah, I recommend reading the book Poison Mind by Jeffrey Good and Susan Gorek. And that's the, that's the, that is the case of the man who tried to poison an entire family because they played their music too loud and uh, weren't his kind of people. 
It is absolutely terrifying that so little can set this man off and that he chose a vicious, painful poison with no cure that involves a long, painful, drawn-out death. This sounds worse than arsenic poisoning, cyanide. This sounds like the worst of the worst. Police thought maybe that he had killed before using this method, and they even looked for more bodies um, around his houses, like in the backyards. They dug it up. They did so much stuff. Um, they didn't find any. They didn't. They didn't find any. But I don't know. What do you think? Has he killed before? And would he kill again if not caught? In my own personal opinion, I think most likely yes and yes. Yeah, he would have. Um, yes, had he gotten away with it, um, I don't think it would have been the the last time somebody would have been injured or killed by him. I'm not sure what he was planning with that secret torture sex room. But he was only days away from completing construction on it. And I am very happy he was caught before it could be put to use. Because something tells me that it wasn't for consenting partners. And something particularly interesting about that is that Susan and other detectives thought that the room could potentially have been built to hold her in. And when George rented Susan his Alturas home... He was making it clear that he never locks the doors and if she wants to lock the door, put a key somewhere where he can get it to like get in and get stuff. I don't know. It just seemed like he was kind of setting the brickwork to having access to Susan when she was sleeping or something like this. And Maybe he was actually planning to abduct her from the house that she was renting from him because he knew his way around it. He was telling her, oh, they never lock the doors. You don't have to lock the doors. Don't worry about it. Oh, I can stop by at any time and get stuff, blah, 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 blah. I don't know. Just sounds weird to me. George Treple, as far as I know, he has never admitted guilt to this crime. And he believes that perhaps the poison Coca-Cola was meant for his wife, Diana Carr, from another doctor or possibly one of her patients. And since Diana and Peggy share the same last name, Carr, the Cokes went to the wrong Carr family. But I don't really buy into this theory because, I mean, I guess Diana, she was known as a firecracker. She was known to piss a lot of people off. But George, he just has the background. He just has the background of the poisoning and liking to give people chemicals when they don't know. He seemed to really like that. Because, I don't know, there's just so much passed on George doing this kind of thing that I, I don't buy this theory at all. But I do find it strange that he hasn't admitted to it at all, which, I don't know. I would love to hear a confession from him. This case is totally wild and I believe there are movies made on it, but I didn't watch any of them. I didn't even look up any movies made on this. I, honestly, I didn't have time. The The book that I read was so detailed and so thick. It was a big ass book. So you can check out that book if you want um, a very, very in-depth look into this case. And again, that's Poison Mind by Susan Gorek and Jeffrey Good. It's the first case that I found a book written in partnership with the undercover agent on the case um, that I've read. That's the first time I've, I've come across a book written like that on a case that I'm covering. And then I read it and then did my podcast on it. So it had a lot of, lot of detail, a lot of detail, which is why it's 
this episode is a two-parter and why the second part is I'm gonna say well over an hour long so I'm gonna end it there Uh, I will say that hell no a true crime podcast has expanded its reach and can now be found on audible amazon music stitcher iHeartRadio, overcast podbay pied Podvine, Podvine, and of course Spotify, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, and Anchor. So basically, um, everywhere you can stream, I think. I don't. If there's more places I should get it on, please let me know on Instagram at Hell No a True Crime Podcast. Don't forget to follow, rate, and review on whatever platform you are streaming on. It could be one of the above. Uh, and yeah, again, check out Hell No a True Crime Podcast on Instagram. To George Treppel, I say hell no. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Bye.